Nude recreation and nude travel has been identified as a top travel trend for this year because of the popularity created by celebrities and social media. Because we have nude beaches in Florida, nude beaches in the country, those demographics are changing to younger audience, and that's because of social media. The celebrities, the stars, the followers of these people who the Kardashians, like a perfect example for, they're always almost nude. And they've made it um, a non-issue. Space tourism expert Valerie Stimmick says that we will likely see civilians traveling to space this year. Specifically, there are some really good indicators from the companies that will be the first companies that will be offering space tourism services that one or both of the main players in the U.S. market will be taking up paying passengers, hopefully more than once this year, but I think at least once. Learn more about two of this year's top travel trends, nacations or nude recreation, and space tourism on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Nacations, otherwise known as nude recreation and nude travel, represents a $550 million global industry. Jeff Baldessari with the American Association for Nude Recreation, an organization that represents 52 million individuals in 180 resorts and campgrounds worldwide, says that nude recreation is safe and wholesome and that it enriches a person's physical, spiritual, and mental health and is unlike anything the media portrays. Nudist recreation has been around for a very, very long time. 88 years. 88 years. Well, this I, year, yes ma'am. I read, I read that nudist recreation is um, a top travel trend for 2020. Mm -hmm. How did this come about? Through, actually, to be perfectly honest with you, it's been going on for a long, long time. But I think with the insertion of social media, because nudity was very put in the, in the closet. People, the older generation who are nudists are still in the closet. They still don't want to be out in public because they're afraid of their jobs and things like that, losing them, or if they retire, their friends or their church social uh, meetings. So that's still um, sort of a sort of a stay in the closet type of thing. That's why most of the clubs and the resorts that are, are available are all fenced in. So how do they balance between the social stigma and their comfort zone? That's a great question. I, I, I see them with their, their same, they, they hang around their same friends who are also nudists. And that's how they get, get over that because they're with the same people who want the same thing. I used to work at some place called Cypress Cove Nudist Resort. And I was all dressed at the time. But the biggest takeaway from that before this company took me from there to put me here, uh, my biggest takeaway was this. And I'll always say this. First of all, they're very nice people. Overly nice. They're very nice people. Once you get over the initial shock, after five minutes, you don't look anymore. And the, the one takeaway I got was, being a New York City guy, you had to have the right suit, the right watch, the right title, the right car. Everything mattered. Here, you can't tell who's rich or poor mm -hmm. because they're not wearing clothes. But again, I go back to the one takeaway was when I talked to people, I actually listened. I was, I was looking in their eye. I wasn't thinking, my God, look at those earrings or that necklace or that beautiful dress or anything else. I was looking them in the eye and listening to what they had to say. That was the biggest takeaway to me. So is the demographic for um, nudists changing now with, you know, the, um, the, the emerging trend? 
it is. It's a mo- it's a lot of uh, now. It's at the point right now. It's now it's forty nine to seventy. It's the age group right now, the demographics with our members and people who go to nudist resorts. But because we have nude beaches in Florida, nude beaches in the country, those demographics are changing to younger audience. And that's because of social media. The celebrities, the stars, the followers of these people who the Kardashians, I give a perfect example for, they're always almost nude. And they've made it um, a non-issue. Hmm. And that's really what, what has the young people driving the young people to nude recreation. What are some of the most common misperceptions about nude recreation? The common misconception is that what the media puts out, especially certain types of media. I'm not going to say who it is. The types of media that they're uh, mentally unfit to be around children, that, uh, that they're all having sex, uh, all that kind of crazy stuff. And that's so far beyond the truth. These are not swingers. These are family-oriented people, husbands and wives and their kids who've grown up nude. And it's very much a family-oriented vacation um, setting. And that's the biggest misconception that people have because the only thing that sells, and you, I knew know this, like I said, I get the um, Google Analytics search, and I get Meltwater search. The only thing I get on there is every once in a while a great article about nude beaches, but I also get, uh, let's see, a nude man walked into a house after a little girl, you know, type of thing. That's a nude, that's the stories that sell. Right. And that's what people see all the time. And they don't, and they don't open up their cell. There's a, something that happened in Canada. They had a nude swim meet. It's a big gym with a pool and they had a nude swim with kids and adults. The, the town went nuts. They've been doing it for 10 years every year and the town went nuts because they saw kids there or whatever. But they had all their ducks in order. They had all their placement there. They had everything, IDs and everything, and it went without, out without a hitch. But because people heard nude and children, their, their minds went to something totally different that they read about almost every day. How do you address the health and security concerns? Every club has somebody designated. If it's a bigger club, more than one person to walk around, to look around. Pretty much you know the right people. You know, it's like uh, I was a hotel guy for a hotel, opening hotels and resorts for 17 years. You know when someone's checking in, they're not up there for a good reason. And we always have the checks and balances of people. When they check in, you have to give your ID. They do a, they do a, um, a Google search on any background checks before you're entered in the clubs. Okay. And that's with everybody. Now, as a member of Anner, we do that here. We do that here, and once they're, they go through, which everyone does, every once in a while we see one person um, that says, oh, sorry, you can't join, but it happens maybe once a year, one person a year out of the 30,000, 40,000 members that we have. Um, we have all those ducks in order. We have all those um, check and balances for that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And Anner stands for? The Association for Nude Recreation. Okay. All right. And then it's A-A-N-R. Uh, for for a newbie, uh, somebody Mm -hmm. who has never visited a nudist beach or nudist Mm -hmm. resort, how do you prepare them for that uh, transformative experience? And what are some of the things they can do to... to That's a great word. That's a great word because it is transformative. And I'll add something to this right now before I tell tell you this. Every single person who's tried a nude resort always come back and say either this to me or somebody else, I should have done this sooner. Every time. Now to prepare yourself, which is interesting, um, having worked at a news resort as the director of sales and marketing, I'd take people on tours. The men were fine with it. 
And my personal belief is this, and I don't do that, or my personal belief is this, men play more team sports growing up. So they're always in the showers. I was a wrestler, so we didn't care. Uh, women, not so much. So the men were okay with it. Now the women were a little bit squeamish and didn't want to do it. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of resorts, a few of more than a couple, who have a separate section. And mostly um, uh, Cypress Cove is one, and I take the men and women to there. And the woman who doesn't want to go into the crowded area or in public yet, she is a secluded area where she can be nude for some time and just relax and enjoy it. And then come on board and say, okay, let me go to the pool area. And once they do, they're okay with that. It's just a matter of getting them used to it because no one's there to judge anybody because there's all different types of bodies there. I met a woman, and being from New York City, I don't, I have no, I have no um, uh, filter on my brain or my mouth. So I will. It's, it's not what you say; it's how you say it or how you ask it. I saw a woman who had a double mastectomy. She walked around, beautiful lady, uh, beautiful lady. She walked around, not a care in the world. So of course, Jeff had to go to her. I said. I gotta ask you something. You had a double mastectomy, obviously. How did you get to this point where you you just don't care? And anybody thinks. And she told me the story. She said, It took me a year. It took me a year of being at home, staying in my house, looking in the mirror constantly, looking at me and saying, There's nothing wrong with me. I am fine. I am you know, the whole thing. She kept repeating here's this mantra to herself. And I was so interested in the story, she kept talking. And then um she made all these friends. But what she did, and when she went to her first news resort, as a, a cancer survivor, not a double mastectomy person, a cancer survivor, that's what her takeaway was. And she walked in like that, and everybody greeted her with open arms. No, I have never seen anything like in my entire life. Mm, that's a beautiful story. And Thank you. She's, she's, a great, she's a great lady. But I, she was nice enough to let me ask that question and just be, and tell me how she did that. And she goes, hey, all, for a year, I just said, I, I'm not less of a woman. I'm a cancer survivor. And this is what happened when you survived cancer. I don't mistake to me. And, and, and people just rallied around her walking into that resort. It just blew me, it blew me away because I don't know if I have that kind of, um, I don't know if I have that in me. How is this current political climate impacting nudist tourism? I'll tell you something very funny. Most of our members are Republicans. Oh. That, isn't that, I would have not have thought that. That's, that's a takeaway for me that was shocking to me. But for most, they love the president. They're mostly Republicans. There's some Democrats there, but mostly the Republicans. And it didn't affect them at all. It does not affect them at all. That's what shocked me, too. Because I'd say, oh, I like Trump. I voted for Reagan. I'm like, you're a Republican and you're a nudist. Because, because it, it's interesting because they're not, a, they're not a majority in the public's eye. They're a minority. And I would assume being a minority not getting what you want had to take 88 years to get everything you needed to get to where you are today. You would not be a Republican. I don't know why my mind went that way. But I was surprised. And I was like, well, okay, that, that, that is something new I learned. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of minorities, how, uh, how, what is the demographic, the ethnic demographic of your, your uh, population? Sure. Uh, mostly white. Mm-hmm. But last year, we had the first Black Naturist Club start. Oh. And they are the fastest growing club we've ever experienced in Anner. They started with three members, ended up with 57 in less than a month. And they're from Baltimore. And they are people who go everywhere around the world as black naturists. And the reason why they call themselves black naturists is because that's what they are. That's what they are. But you can be white and join them. And that was their biggest takeaway. And there are white people who have joined them. 
but black naturists are a, a, a very big group in Baltimore, and they're very, very, very nice people also. But I would say the majority is white right now, white Anglo-Saxon, um, not a lot of ethnicity yet. There are people who are, um, you know, brown, who are um, black, like I said. Uh, there are a few Asians, but it's mostly a white Ang- American Anglo-Saxon. Because it started in Germany, I don't know if you know, it's, nudism started in Germany. And when the Germans came over here, that's when it started here again. And when was, when was that? God, in the thir- 30s, okay. 20s, 30s. But it was more of a health thing than a nude thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And because there, there was no McDonald's back then, there was nothing like that. <laughs> so it was, it was very, it was very health conscious. Volleyball, tennis, bicycling, skiing, and it really didn't affect the public at all. It was more, it more looked at as like a health thing than anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, remind us of your website. Sure, not a problem. Um, it's www.anner.com. On that website is fully everything, our mission statement, our club locator. There probably is a club near them, near you, uh, where you live. But if you take me up, I'll take. I'll invite you to a club. Take me up on it, please. You and your husband, you take me up on it. <laughs> well, thank you You very will come much. back saying, I should have done this before. You will. <laughs> and it's weather. It's going to be 80 degrees a whole week here. But just real quickly, if I may read this to you, the mission. The mission of Adder is simply put, we exist to advocate nudity and nude recreation in appropriate settings while educating and informing society of their value and enjoyment. So we have on board lawyers who fight all these causes and have been done very, very well. Um, for fighting and, and, and winning cases about people who didn't want someone nude and, and you know, because just because someone's offended does not make it right. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but that's, com is where you'll see news and events, advocacy, community, members benefits. You can join Anner if you'd like to. You can look for places to go. Anything about nude beaches. Yeah, we have everything, news and events. Anything you'd want to know about Anner is right in that webpage. To learn more about nude recreation and to find a vacation resort near you, click on the link we have for the American Association for Nude Recreation we have on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world one story at a time. Travel deeper, explore, and keep meaningful conversations going by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift.
Valerie Stimmick, space tourism expert and author of a Lonely Planet book about astrotourism called Dark Skies, says that this is going to be the year that space tourism launches. But astrotourism, she says, will be the trendsetter because it offers wonderful opportunities to explore space from the ground. Valerie, space tourism was identified as a travel trend for 2020, yet we're not really there yet. Um, And I read on your website, Space Tourism Guide, that you're actually predicting that this is the year. Do you really think it is? I do, uh, though if you've asked many of us that have been making these predictions for many years now, every year we think it's the year. Uh, but specifically, there are some really good indicators from the companies that will be, the first companies that will be offering space tourism services that one or both of the main players in the U.S. market will be taking up paying passengers, hopefully more than once this year, but I think at least once. Now, between the two players in the space tourism field, Richard Branson and Elon Musk, who do you think is being more aggressive with the development of space tourism? So I would actually do a slight correction. Um, There was a recent article from the UK that said that Elon Musk was one of the two companies, you know, SpaceX is one of the two companies in space tourism. Technically, I would say that, that SpaceX is not a space tourism company. They very intelligently allowed a a civilian to pay them a lot of money mm-hmm. to run a test flight that they already need to do anyway. I don't think that they're calling it that, but in the timelines that Elon has put forward of getting humans to Mars, there is certainly the need to do exactly the flight that that this um, Japanese billionaire has paid for. And the nice thing is he actually paid for it. He provided the financial resources that they need to do a flight of that type. So I don't know that they'll ever call it a test and they may do a flight of the exact same um, path and trajectory before that. But it's good to think of it. it I, I think of it that way, um, that it's not, it's not really a main part of their business model and it's not really something that they've offered to other people to purchase so I wouldn't necessarily say that the company is focusing on tourism. The mm-hmm. second company that I would say is uh, Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' company, and they are definitely focusing on space tourism. Virgin Galactic is, is really modeled after Richard Branson's style of marketing and promotion in any of his businesses, and Blue Origin is similarly marketed on Jeff Bezos' style, which is much more subdued. And so while... Um, Virgin Galactic has made a lot more headlines and they have achieved, I would say, more significant milestones for human spaceflight and civilian commercial spaceflight. The, the Blue Origin has been doing tests of the same types of technology, perhaps not with humans aboard yet, but they're right behind them in the timeline. As between Virgin Galactic and Blue Origins, who was poised to be first? If I had to put money down, I would say Virgin Galactic. But I could be wrong. It's a 50-50 shot. I think, I think it's entirely possible that Blue Origin will surprise everyone because that's been their general approach to doing this business is that they test and they um, iterate and they replicate their successes very, very quietly. Mm-hmm. I could see them doing their first flight and announcing it after, that, after the fact versus Virgin Galactic, who's been very public-facing in their communications about how, what milestones they're achieving. You wrote a book for Lonely Planet dedicated to astrotourism, which is slightly different than space tourism, yet a chapter in your book is dedicated to space tourism. Why so? Well, the astrotourism is a broad 
new development in, in tourism. It's actually an activity that people have been doing for a long time, which is traveling for astronomy experiences. So anyone who's taken their family to the Grand Canyon and done one of their star parties or stargazing programs, that's a great example of astrotourism. Um, but it didn't, have a, it didn't really have a name until the past five years. And within that, I would argue that space tourism is one type of astrotourism. It just so happens to be going to space for a type of astronomy experience, which is viewing the planet from above, but it still fits within the umbrella of astrotourism. Now, the initial development of space tourism really is basically just going to be trips to space uh, for these short flights, but down the road, do you envision um, uh, scalable uh, mass travel to space and perhaps to the moon at some point? Do you think we'll see that in our lifetimes? That's always the caveat is the timeline. I do think it's entirely possible. The technology is is certainly moving very rapidly in the right direction. Whether or not it will be financially scalable and environmentally scalable in our lifetimes is a question I'm not totally set on. I do believe we'll see um, the first paying passengers going to those kinds of destinations, potentially even Mars, um, if Elon Musk's timeline in his lifetime is, is achieved. But I don't know that we'll see it at scale or that, you know, it's affordable enough that anybody could buy a ticket, hopefully, but I'm not quite sure that we have the, the timeline that uh, condensed yet. Would you go, Valerie, just out of curiosity, would you uh, embark on one of these adventures? I, I would. However, um, I always say that I would not go on the first flight. I am not a pioneer. Um, <laughs> I let pioneers and people who love the thrill of being the first, I will gladly let them go and make sure that it works. I will go on the flights once the technology is proven. <laughs> I don't blame you. Now, I want to um, stick a little bit closer to home, i.e. the ground, um, because astrotourism is, you know, is great for people who want to experience the, our, our night skies, uh, but not leave Earth. Uh, but you, you say that astrotourism is much more than stargazing, and you alluded to certainly space tourism as being a component of astrotourism. What are some of the other activities around astrotourism? The most popular by far is Aurora tourism. I'd actually say that that might be more popular is a driver of actual tourism and people traveling to different destinations because you can only see the Aurora from certain parts of the globe and you can go stargazing within reason in a much larger area on the globe. So Aurora tourism is one. And then another popular one that's actually uh, gaining a lot of momentum is eclipse tourism. So people who are traveling to see an eclipse, specifically to be in the path of totality of a total solar eclipse, uh, after the 2017 total solar eclipse across the United States, we saw a huge influx and in interest in that kind of travel, such that the 2024 eclipse is already in the news every, you know, every April as we get sort of close to the pre, pre-anniversary. I don't know how to think about it. It's coming up in four years. It's coming yeah, in three years, we're starting to see those kinds of headlines so that people are planning in advance for that type of travel, too. Where can a traveler experience some of the most spectacular celestial events? Well, that's a great question. Um, the main conditions that you need to experience any astronomical event, whether that be seeing the aurora, um, seeing a meteor shower, trying to spot an interstellar comet as it's passing through our part of the solar system or uh, a meteor, 
uh, asteroid of any kind like that would just be a dark sky. And we're very fortunate, at least in the U.S., we have quite a number of dark skies. Our national parks are typically protected and are increasingly being certified for their dark skies. And around the world, there are other dark sky certification programs that are working to protect natural areas of darkness so that people can within reasonable time frames for travel, so within two to three hours, they can travel out of a city and get to a dark place and see an astronomical event. So for example, there's um, West Havilland Nature Park, which is just outside of Berlin, surprisingly dark sky location, very, very close to a major city in Europe. There are dark sky locations all over um, the Middle East and Africa. You can find some great places, even in Southeast Asia. Um, islands are always good. So a lot of the tropical destinations that people like can often be great stargazing locations if the development was handled properly so that there's not a lot of light pollution. Um, we're lucky in that if we protect the dark sky, it's available to everyone all over the world. But uh, that's the main thing that people are working on is actually making sure that the light, light pollution isn't as big of a problem. What sparked your interest in this travel niche? This is a very interesting niche. It is. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to sort of get into the niche um, early. <laughs> um, it's a combination. So as a child, I was interested in astronomy. I wanted to be an astronaut. I distinctly remember seeing Hale-Bopp Comet back in 1997. And I was fortunate to grow up in Alaska. So I also experienced the Aurora, which for many people, one, visiting Alaska and two, seeing the Aurora are sort of bucket list things. And I, I was fortunate to do both. Um, as a traveler and as a travel writer, I wanted to contribute in an area that hadn't, I wanted to make my own mark. That's probably the easiest way to say it. I wanted to contribute something in an area and help people get travel resources that they were not getting anywhere else. So I was a little bit tired of writing and regurgitating um, itineraries and top 10 lists about places like Paris and Thailand. Or, and, but not that those places don't have extremely compelling stories to be told about them, but a lot of what travel media has become is much more of this consumable online content. And I was sort of burning out of contributing that in that way. And started to think, well, where's left and where's next? And the two that came to mind were deep sea and deep space. And I'm afraid of deep water. So I went for space. <laughs> As we uh, start 2020, any uh, predictions uh, that you're willing to go on record for with respect to space tourism this year? Yeah, I think this year we will definitely get at least one flight of paying customers. Um, I very, very deeply hope that that's a successful flight. There's, the, there's no guarantees when it comes to space flight, as there's no guarantees with anything in life. This is a difficult scientific challenge, and I know that the companies that are working on it are doing their best to ensure the safety at the highest level that they can. But uh, accidents have happened in human space flight before, and um, undoubtedly will happen again. That would be a major setback. But I, I believe we'll see paying, paying customers go to space um, that's probably the biggest one. That's what everyone's talking about. <laughs> to learn more about astrotourism and space tourism, we have links to Valerie's Space Tourism Guide and her book, Dark Skies, on this show page at worldfootprints.com. This has really been a fun show, dear. I love the daring adventures. And, you know, I've always wanted to travel to outer space. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a little girl and really have a chance to view our planet from that perspective. Would you consider going up in one of the first space travel flights? 
No, I would like to see more flights before I even consider stepping on board one of these spacecrafts. Not because of fear, but I like to see proven technology. And at this point, I'm not comfortable with where civilian space travel stands right now in the hands of these commercial companies. Mm. And, you know, the other uh, adventure we talked about, uh, nude recreation. You know, it's funny, having lived in Europe, it's very commonplace to bathe topless on a beach. And frankly, I don't really have any problem with nude recreation in the appropriate setting. Well, as you know, different strokes for different folks, I guess. Uh, so uh, if people want to go in the buff, more power to them. For most of us, we've talked about daring adventures. But as Helen Keller once said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.